You are listening to Studying Pixels, a podcast on game studies and video game culture. I'm Stefan Heinrich Simont. I'm a game studies scholar from Germany. I'm Dan Hughes, a Japanese scholar from Texas. And you can find us every Sunday on studyingpixels.com and wherever you get your podcasts. Whenever there is a long weekend, whenever I have Friday off, I just can't help but think Fridays should just always be part of the weekend. <laughs> <laughs> oh boy, you know, I I read all these articles being in the being in the corporate world to some extent, I read all these articles about what if we went to a 9 or 10 hour four-day work week and every time I read an article Every time this has been experimented with, the results are everyone is much happier and the world is brighter. Yeah. You just <laughs> yeah. need more time to do the things that you want to do. And in German, by the way, Friday is called Freitag, very mm. similar. And Freitag literally means free day. I don't understand the concept of who came up with the idea of saying, <laughs> let's put a whole lot of work into that day. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, The funny thing to me, too, is that uh, I, this might be the same for you, Stefan, but Fridays for me are, it's one of, it's, it's split exactly down the middle. Half of the people I work with are trying desperately to get everything done before the weekend. And the other half are already on the weekend. They've already checked out. So <laughs> it's such a, it's such a dice roll of a day. I think I should probably be the last person to complain, though, because at the moment I'm trying to structure for the summer term my work routines in mm. doing a whole lot of work in person at uni on Wednesday and Thursday. And then on Friday, I'm trying my best to keep that reserved for at least a couple of hours of intense PhD work, because even though I expected it to go otherwise, the PhD just doesn't write itself. <laughs> it just stays on the same page number whenever I open up that project. Oh boy! Well, it's I think lucky then that you can you can schedule that that free day yeah. for the for the writing because man, I don't envy you that task. <laughs> yeah, it takes a long time writing a PhD. It does take mm. a long time, and such a thing like an Easter weekend is perfect for that. By the way, Happy Easter! Yes, Happy Easter, everybody! Wonderful. If you like yeah. to support us on this show, if you like to enable us to maybe, who knows, maybe in a couple of months, get to the point where we can say we'll just take every Friday off from <laughs> work and instead work solely on Studying Pixels, then you can help us do that by becoming a Studying Pixels Plus member, where you find all of our episodes entirely ad-free. You'll get a lovely sticker that says, I am Studying Pixels, and you get monthly plus episodes. In this month, in April 2022, we are doing a plus episode on what makes a good research question because it's really hard to get a research question right and we want to help you with that. If you're curious, then you can go to studyingpixels.com plus to find out more. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. 
There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Since it is Easter, we thought, why not talk about, well, Easter eggs? I assume that was a really low-hanging fruit, wasn't it? <laughs> yeah, I, th I had that thought. But you know what? Low-hanging fruit is sometimes the most tasty of the fruit. Yeah. So mm. I think this is totally warranted, and it was a lot of fun putting these together. This time around, we just wanted to have a casual conversation about Easter eggs, those that we have found yeah. and those that we just find cool. But before we do that, we have to define what we mean when we say Easter egg, because it's kind of a wishy-washy term, I feel. So for the sake of this episode, we just settled on they are Easter eggs are hidden gimmicks, secrets, or references that either to other games, to other media, or to the developers or the development process itself. Mm. And they are hidden in a way that the average player would not just stumble upon it and that it's not really part of, well, the gameplay structure as such. It doesn't give you any in-game benefits or rewards to find an Easter egg. Like an upgrade, a weapon upgrade can't be an Easter egg, right? It's something that is entirely optional. It doesn't give you any, any meaningful benefits in the, in the gameplay system. Yeah, it's kind of its own reward that you you found it and you get a maybe a chuckle out of it or you you feel like you were let in on a secret, just something fun that's out of the way. Yeah, just like you don't search for Easter eggs, you don't go on an Easter egg hunt uh, for the sake of eating those Easter eggs, but it's just about <laughs> basically the the pleasure of searching and finding. Exactly. Well, one thing I wanted to bring up too, this was kind of made famous and, and I think beautifully so by the film Ready Player One, um, which I, <laughs> I have, maybe that's another podcast entirely, we could talk about that. But one thing I do really like about it is that it shines a light on the origin of Easter eggs. And as we know, I love the origin of things. <laughs> and yeah. so um, I thought it would be fun to just say briefly that the first Easter egg was created by a, a man named Warren Robinette, who worked on a game for the Atari called Adventure. And It was a time in video games where the people who made games were not known at all. There were no credits available. You know, nowadays, Elden Ring, for example, has, I think, like a 15-minute credit sequence with all the people who worked on it. Um, but back in the 80s, they just kind of appeared, and you didn't know who made them beyond the company that put them out. And so Warren Robinette, very proud of his game that he worked on, the very first Easter egg was, if you found one pixel and held on to it and dragged it all the way back to the beginning of the game, there was a room that showed created by Warren Robinette. And that was the very first Easter egg, just having his stamp on the game that he created. And it spawned a whole tradition of Easter eggs that work in that way, that basically put in yeah. credits for a certain person, not necessarily the creator of the game, but maybe, a I think in Legend of Zelda, there's a secret, the first Legend of Zelda that mm. indicates who developed a certain area, as far as I'm aware. Like certain rooms, certain puzzles, which people just leave brief messages and sometimes inside jokes and kind of make it theirs, right? 
Yeah, it was like a a stamp for them to leave their mark on the game that they worked so hard on. Like when someone writes on the wall, I was here. <laughs> that's right. That's exactly it. <laughs> yeah. But I think as fun as all these Easter eggs are, um, I love that that's the origin of it because it, it's just someone who's very proud of their work saying, I was here. And over time they have developed. There's so many different variations of Easter eggs. And I think one of the most popular methods to implement an Easter egg is by virtue of a secret ending. Yes. We both have, each of us have brought five Easter eggs that we find super interesting. And I think if I look through that, it should be four of them in total, four out of these 10 are secret endings, right? Yeah, I, I know. I I brought two. Me too. Me too. I also have two. Yeah. Okay. So yeah, I think they're, maybe they're the easiest Easter eggs to find, but yeah. not always. Sometimes you have to do a lot to get those secret endings. Sometimes you have to do a lot. Sometimes you have to just go against the grain of what anyone else would normally do, such as in the case of Far Cry 4, which is my first Easter egg. My, I'm going to go through just the, the secret ending here because it does have a secret ending. It's a yeah. This game is a huge open world action role playing game that you will sink dozens and dozens of hours into. However, you can also make it very short. You can actually finish this game with a proper ending in 15 minutes. <laughs> you play as AJ Gale, who returns to his fictional home country, Kirat, to spread the ashes of his deceased mother. And you're in this, you see this cutscene at the very beginning where he arrives on the island and where he's transported through the country. And this transport is jumped by the military of uh, a tyrant who's ruling the Uh, this this country, King Pagan Min is his name. And AJ is then abducted by him. And he's brought to Pagan Min's residence and put down at a table where they are about to have a meal together. All the time, Pagan Min is kind of like rambling and they do this typical thing of Far Cry villains where it's just, you see flickers of madness shine through what he's doing. At the very beginning, I think he already stabs like one of his own men because he made a mistake, basically, and he shouldn't have jumped that convoy, so it was all a mistake. And then in the middle of that meal, Pagan Min, he suddenly gets up because he he gets called out of the room and he says, like, I'm so sorry, I need to go. Uh, Just give me 15 minutes, I'll be right back. And so he leaves and then the game gives you control over AJ. And the first thing you do, naturally, is you get up and you cause all kinds of ruckus, and you collect stuff in that mansion, and then you fight your way out, and then you basically go on your own mission. However, if you are so kind and remain seated, excuse <laughs> me, you don't have to remain seated. You can even walk around that area, but you can't leave that area for 15 minutes. Literal 15 minutes, which is a long time in a video game when nothing's really happening. Then Pagan Min will actually return, and he will thank you for your patience, uh, and that he just had to sort thing, some things out. And he will then bring you to a place where you can bury your mother's ashes and complete this uh, ritual. And then you're hopping on the next helicopter and leaving the island, and it's done. Credits roll. That's so funny because, I mean, for, for a lot of reasons, but I love the idea that this, you know, despotic madman who's keeping you obviously you would assume if i stay here he's going to kill me and then the idea that he just helps you (laughs) 
Yeah, he's got no interest really in, kill, in killing you. He's just yeah. like, yeah, mm, you know, thanks for just staying here. I'm just going to help you yeah. quickly. And we're going to get this sorted out. He has no hostility towards you. You're just afraid in that in that moment. Right. Right. And it, it's just also video game convention that as soon as you ga- gain control over the character, you immediately start causing a ruckus. Right. <laughs> right. Get out of there. You do. Yeah. No one can hold me. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> my uh, my first one is also a secret ending, and. Uh, this is, everyone saw this coming. I'm going to bring up Kingdom Hearts multiple times this episode because of the news, Yay. but also because I'm me. And um, <laughs> one of the things that I really love about the Kingdom Hearts series, and it's been getting a lot of attention lately because of the announcement of the new one, are the secret endings. And the secret endings of Kingdom Hearts, they are, it, it ranges in difficulty in how to get them. Um, a lot of the time you either have to fully complete the game, like get 100% on it, or if you play it on the hardest difficulty, usually they reward you with it. But what what's cool about these secret endings is that they're really just trailers for the next game. And what I loved about this as a kid was that the secret ending called Deep Dive was in the very first Kingdom Hearts game. You could see it. And I think what was so cool about it was you get to the end of Kingdom Hearts, And it's a very definitive ending. It could stop right there. But then if you do all this work in the game, you get the hint that there will be more. And it was just this beautiful feeling of this world is bigger than I think it is, which is very thematically appropriate. I remember actually unlocking the secret ending in Kingdom Hearts 2. Oh, yes. A desert kind of sequence, if I recall correctly. Yeah, it's uh, the what would eventually become just a scene. Yeah, a, a trailer, and it was for Birth by Sleep, the game that would follow it. And it was so, oh, that one in particular, it was so mysterious because it was unlike anything you'd seen in either game prior to that. So it was just opening your eyes to, wow, there's so much more that I don't know about in this wacky universe. It's such a great method, as you said, because who's going to unlock such endings, who's going to put in that time and that effort, that dedication, those are like super fans of these, of the series. And of course, those are exactly the people that you're going to flash by showing them eventually like a three minute sequence that teases the next game. And they're just like, wow, okay, so this is still, it's still going on. (laughs) It's a cool example of four meeting function, I think, because the more you look, the more you find. And that's a very very big thing in the Kingdom Hearts series. So it's a, uh, I love, I love things like that. So that's, that's that. I'll talk more about Kingdom Hearts, but I'll stop there. <laughs> <laughs> so we've got, we've got one secret ending that's basically like a subversion of, uh, of the entire game in the case of Far Cry. Mm. We've got a secret ending as an Easter egg that is uh, a teaser for something that's going to come in the future. The third secret ending that I have, it could have well been a secret ending episode, I just realized right now, (laughs) but we've got a couple of others as well. (laughs) Yeah. I was thinking about which secret ending I found the most interesting, and to me, it was Tokyo Dark. Mm. In in Tokyo Dark, which is a game that not that many people know, it's a a Japanese point-and-click adventure with a little bit of role-playing elements. You make a couple of choices and you've got your stats that 
can change over time depending on the choices that you make, and it's got a whole lot of endings. And it's a very, well, according to its title, very dark game. It's a psychological horror game uh, betraying its uh, anime graphics. It's pretty serious and pretty dire and pretty creepy as well, I may say. Because you play as Detective Ayami, who explores the Tokyo underbelly. Her partner got killed, and she's trying to find out, well, by whom, and as soon as she has found that out, why? <laughs> because that's the <laughs> harder question to answer. And over time, she, depending on what you do, may gradually descend into madness. It's a super interesting game. And no matter which direction you turn, most likely things will get pretty bleak. A little bit like surrealistic and very bleak. Like there's not much hope in this video game. But there's one secret ending that I found so cool as an Easter egg. That's the secret cat ending. <laughs> because you have not, I mean, you have a cat yourself in the game. I think Miss Fluffington is its name. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, Lady Fluffington, yes, Lady Fluffington is it. Ah, name. she's landed gentry. <laughs> yes, you can even speak to Lady Fluffington and it will, uh, it will soothe your anxiety a little bit. Oh. And over time then, there are a couple of things that you, a couple of missions with cats that you need to do and you have to fulfill very specific requirements. You also have to find, I think, 20 cat plushies that are hidden in the game. And once you've done that and triggered a very specific sequence of events, once you reach the ending, then instead of plummeting into basically the uh, ever, ever existing joy swallowing abyss of nothingness, <laughs> you're sure. instead teleported to a cave where you find uh, a cat shrine, so to speak, which is ruled by Lady Fluffington, the god of this world. It's actually called, I think it's called Nekogami Shrine, which is like Cat God Shrine. Cat God, yeah. Yeah. And Lady Fluffington then holds a length lengthy lecture of basically how all other endings are mere attempts to escape the inevitable. And the only <laughs> true way is to basically find peace under the domain and under the domain of the cats, where you have to basically respect and worship cats. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think <laughs> it's a it's a worthy lesson to take away i think <laughs> yes yeah worship cats and uh have your anxiety melt away <laughs> yeah and it's like uh, finally being able to have a proper conversation with your with your cat when it's like yeah but you always scratched my partner it's like he never respected me true <laughs> <laughs> oh well i have i have an animal ending too um so silent hill 2 masterpiece that it is has one of the funniest uh, secret endings, I think, in video games, and that is the dog ending. So to get this dog ending, you need to see a number of the different endings in Silent Hill 2, at which point, if you play the game again, you can find an item called the dog key. And the dog key opens up a very particular room in the Lakeview Hotel, which is the last kind of level of Silent Hill 2. When you open that door, you're treated to a cutscene where the culprit behind all of James Sunderland's internal struggles, his woes, the terrors he's been seeing, is a very cute Shiba Inu sitting at a control panel. <laughs> and it's revealed that this dog has been controlling all of the horrors in Silent Hill 2. And James looks at him, he falls to his knees, 
And he says, so it was all your work this whole time? It was you? And the dog barks at him. And that's the end of Silent Hill 2. <laughs> Silent Hill really cultivated this, right? The, the dog ending. They did, yeah. And I think uh, to the point where it's, it's like a meme on its own now. And I think people who don't even know about this dog ending can recognize the image of the Shiba Inu with the headset. Because that's that's what uh, that's what it looks like when you go in. There. He's got a little a little microphone, like he's been coordinating with all the monsters to make your life a living hell. So yeah, it really this was a a big deal. Silent Hill is kind of known for a lot of its joke endings, like the UFO ending, or in Silent Hill Three, there's like a Super Sentai ending, I think. Um, but Silent Hill Two, the dog ending, I think is by and large, the fan favorite. Ah, I thought every Silent Hill game had a dog ending, but I might be mistaken there. Because I think I've, I've found the UFO ending in, in a in later Silent Hill game. The UFO ending, I think, is in, is in most of them. I know it's in the first one and in Shattered Memories. Um, and so there's always kind of like a, a joke ending in Silent Hill games. And just the image of James Sunderland literally falling to his knees as if he the thing that cracks me up is, is it, that line so it was your work all the time m makes you think that james suspected this might be the case yeah <laughs> <laughs> that's such a cool thing because both of these endings the cat ending in tokyo dark as well as the dog ending in silent hill they are both subversions, complete subversions of your expectations, because all this time you're working in this, it's like both of these games are super psychological and super dreadful when it comes to the things that happen to the protagonist and the, the trauma they experience. Whereas at the end then stands this kind of cute little anim animal that either saves them <laughs> or basically has been the, the ultimate culprit all along. I think yeah. it's just so charming because we mentioned this before, video games often take themselves so seriously and... Easter eggs are a perfect way to implement a good sprinkle of humor to your game. Absolutely. Especially when it, the atmosphere is so oppressive. If you put in the extra work to get that kind of breath of relief, it makes a big difference. Yeah. The more dreary your game is, the more you need some kind of mild sense of humor that comes in <laughs> at some point in this game. Otherwise, I'm going to just get used to this kind of uh, like very deliberate attempt to create an oppress oppressive atmosphere and then I'm just going to get bored. <laughs> it was your work <laughs> all the time. <laughs> <laughs> well, I also got a horror game. Now we're leaving the domain of the secret ending because this is a proper Easter egg in the sense that we had mentioned it's something that you can find or you cannot find and it can give you something away about the story. And this is about Dead Space. And the Easter egg is called Nicole is Dead. Mm. Dead Space, again. Another dreary horror game. What is it with horror games these days? <laughs> well, you play as Isaac Clarke, uh, and you're an engineer on the spaceship, the Ishimura, which is infested with necromorphs, with aliens, and you have to basically sever their limbs, and they are super creepy and scary. And while you go through Dead Space... I think one as well as two, you are persistently haunted by logs, like voice memos, but also visions of your former girlfriend, Nicole, who was also aboard the Ishimura space station as a senior medical officer. And it seems as if she is persistently calling out to Isaac, usually for help. Mm. However, we learn 
later in the series, in Dead Space 2 specifically, that these calls are not really reliable, that they are not in actuality from Nicole. They are from the so-called marker, which is the source of evil in Dead Space. And the marker has infested Isaac's brain to a certain degree. So these are deliberately implanted hallucinations of his former girlfriend that seem like flashbacks and they are super creepy like they are very yeah. creepy indeed in actuality nicole she survived the outbreak the initial outbreak of the necromorphs and she tried to save other crew members she was a remember a senior medical officer but eventually she committed suicide because she couldn't save people she saw the end of this entire thing coming basically and so she took her own life and that in itself is not at all an interesting easter egg but the actual easter egg is that players could have figured this out all along like this is something that's only revealed i think in dead space 2 but in the first game already if you take the names of all the chapters that you play, you go into the chapter selection menu and you look only at the first letter of each chapter, then it spells out, Nicole is dead. Which is such a nice Easter egg because it just, it does the opposite of what this kind of dog or cat ending does. It intensifies the creepiness. Mm. But basically, if you coincidentally read that and you think like, no, wait, what? <laughs> I thought I was on my way to save her, you know? I love, too, because of the the messages and the flashbacks that you get. There's this, you know, feeling that the, the ghost of Nicole is kind of with you all this time. And it turns out, even a level beyond that, the message was there. It was always there you, that Nicole is dead. That's That's so good. That's such a good, creepy Easter egg. <laughs> yeah. Oh, God. I'm glad that I didn't find that. Because it would have scared me. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> because if you're still if you're still playing this anything, you're like, wait, what? Oh god. Yeah, what? <laughs> but who's well, contacting me then? <laughs> <laughs> Speaking of of creepy Easter eggs, so this is one that falls more in line with our kind of off the beaten path definition of Easter eggs. So there is one of the scariest moments, I think, existentially, that I've ever had in a video game is from Bloodborne. There's a lot of scary moments in Bloodborne, right? But there's only one that actually made uh, my hair kind of stand on end a little bit. Yeah. Now, Stefan, did you ever did you ever meet the brain of Mensis? I think so. I think so. I, it's been such a long time that I can't quite recall, but that name rings a bell. So in Bloodborne, one of the last areas that you go to is called the Nightmare of Mensis. And when you're starting in the level, you start and there's this light shining from a tower. And the longer you stay in the light, the madder you become. You actually start taking madness damage from this thing. So when you make your way up the hill to get to the tower, you see that the cause of the light is this entity called the brain of Mensis. Which is super disgusting. It's gross. <laughs> yeah, it's yeah. it's like a conglomeration of eyeballs and flesh. And yeah, it's, ah. it's, it's terrifying. So you are able to pull a lever and the brain of Mensis falls down a pit so that you'd no longer have to deal with that madness light that shines on you. And the funny thing about that is that if you ended it there, you could assume that that killed the brain of Mensis, but it didn't. If you go into the building in the Nightmare of Mensis, the kind of main area, there's a little room that has a kind of a, 
un, you know, an unsuspecting elevator that if you walk into will take you down, 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 deep into these inky black depths where there is no light on the screen whatsoever. The only light source is your character model. Um, and when you go finally to the end of it, you're in this oppressively dark, no sound area. And if you walk forward out from the darkness, one of the eyeballs of the brain of Mensis comes into view. So that's creepy enough. That's the I remember the that, weirdest. yeah. I played yeah. that. Some, it was nighttime when I had reached oh. that point. And I, Bloodborne generally really managed to scare me. And that particular sequence, I remember because everything happens so slowly and so mm -hmm. deliberately that you just think like, no, this can't be. <laughs> it's so creepy. And the atmosphere is, I mean, it, people, myself included, have called Bloodborne Lovecraftian. Yeah. And one of the things about it is you get to this point and it, it truly feels like you have this eldritch horror staring at you. Yeah. So that's all creepy enough. But you can take it a step further. There's a gesture in Bloodborne called make contact, which is this kind of, you never really get it explained, but it's sort of this idea that all of these outer gods that you're dealing with, this kind of right angle, you put your arm in a right angle and you move it to the opposite right angle. And that's somehow how these gods communicate with one another. So if you do that in front of the brain of Mensis, this big eye that's looking at you, eventually you will complete the gesture and you get a great rune from the brain of Mensis. And it's, I believe it's just like an experience booster. It's nothing fancy, but it's just this little bit of, if you understand the lore just enough, you can try to make contact with this horrifying creature and it'll give you something. And then you get in the elevator and you're on your way after seeing the most horrifying thing you've ever seen in your life. <laughs> and you're like, this is fine. This is uh -huh. fine. Yeah. Well, thanks for the rune, pal. <laughs> <laughs> have, a, have a good one. It's, it is so frightening, but it's such a cool Easter egg because it's consistent with the law. It plays with all kinds of elements and just is, I would say, the one of the, like the quintessential from software Easter eggs because you need to do so many things that are seemingly a bit random. But when you do it and you look back at it, it's of course, it all makes perfect sense, you know? Yes. And I think the, the really cool thing about it to me is that because it doesn't have anything to do with a trophy or any kind of um, item beyond that rune that you get, it feels like you, you finish it and it's one of those Easter eggs where you think, did that really happen? Did I do that? And you only kind of feel confirmed in that when you once you have a conversation like this, where oh yes, I remember that I did that too. <laughs> Ooh, changing Ooh. gears in a completely different direction. <laughs> yes, let's talk about some comedic Easter eggs, such as GTA 4's beating heart of Liberty City. <laughs> comedic and also a little creepy, <laughs> and also it's again also a little bit creepy, right? Where you also find a weird fleshy thing inside a dark place. We don't plan these <laughs> together too much, but we we tend to have great through lines in these episodes. <laughs> it's this one is actually an interesting commentary on the United States of America, as so many things are in GTA, and especially in GTA Four, because this takes place in Liberty City, right? And there's a small island on the coast on which you can find the Statue of Happiness, which is an obvious reference to the Statue of Liberty. It very much resembles 
the original, but in I think in her left hand she has a tablet, and in her right hand like a takeout coffee mug. <laughs> and what you need to do is basically you need to get to that island, which is not part of the main map, and it's there are no missions that would ever take you there. But if you take a helicopter and you fly all the way over there, and you can, for example, read the inscription on the tablet, which say, says the following, Send us your brightest, your smartest, your most intelligent, yearning to breathe free and submit to our authority. <laughs> Watch us trick them into wiping rich people's asses while we convince them it's a land of opportunity. There you go. Read between the lines. <laughs> Beautiful words. GTA is so subtle, aren't they? <laughs> yes, yes. Uh, the poetry of GTA. <laughs> yeah, the poetry of GTA. <laughs> well, and if you then go ahead and you land on that island and you go up to that statue, it even has a door that says something along the lines of like, no secret ahead. Yeah, And if you still go through and you go all the way up inside that statue, several uh, ladders, then you eventually find a huge beating heart within the head of this statue that is in chains and just slowly beats. We did say, jokingly, the poetry of GTA, but that is actually some pretty, pretty haunting good satire <laughs> yeah. that they threw in there. Yeah, I also think so. I mean, of course, GTA is never subtle, and this inscription on this tablet is not subtle. And of course, yeah, okay, it's a heart beating in chains. Well, I mean, this is not this is not Lovecraftian in that sense. It's not. It doesn't have a poetic genius to it. But I still find that this way it is so casually implemented that you just go yeah. there and you're just like, oh, you can actually go to that island. And one thing leads to the next and you go up and up and you think like, oh, what's going to be there? And then it's just this, you can't do anything with that. You can't <laughs> shoot it that hard. It just beats in chains. And I find that is a, is a much stronger statement on how the, on the status of the American dream than the inscription on that tablet is. Especially in a moment of quiet like that in an otherwise boisterous bombastic game it's it's yeah they they know what they're doing over there at rockstar i think we also have to keep <laughs> yeah. in mind that gta 4 was a much more serious and down-to-earth game than gta 5 is like there was no uh, online thing where people would just like fly through the air on motorcycles but gta 4 was a much more <laughs> down-to-earth story about how an immigrant basically comes to the United States very much pursuing that kind of American dream and feeling persistently and increasingly betrayed. So it really resonated with me when I stumbled upon this Easter egg. Ah, America. Well, <laughs> into, from uh, shifting gears only slightly um, into another funny Easter egg that uh, takes you outside the world of the game. So the very first God of War, the... Uh, angriest game <laughs> to ever <Yeah>. exist. <laughs> so in the first God of War, when you get to the throne room at Olympus, there's a statue of Ares and a statue of a Minotaur. And if you destroy them, a secret message is revealed to you. And it turns out that that secret message is a phone number that's kind of jumbled up in a certain way. So if you put it together, if you read it correctly, you can actually call this phone number and Kratos picks up. Really? And, yeah. And Kratos picks up, and he's kind of congratulating you for finding this. And as he's talking to you, David Jaffe, the creator of God of War, 
starts talking as well. And he says, hey, congratulations. Um, but if you found this phone number online or in a magazine or something, it's really lame of you that you did that. Uh, so he chides you if you found it other than in the game. And after he chides you, Kratos hacks him to pieces. <laughs> <laughs> so that was, I think, uh, I remember finding that with a friend of mine. We were in his his little uh, attic room in his house, and we found this number, and we realized it was a phone number, and we called it, and I think we laughed until morning, thinking about <laughs> the the work that they had to put into that, the fun they must have had, just a really great easter egg i think easter eggs also are really such a great way to just liberate some creativity that otherwise yeah. would not have a place in this completely off tone completely off beat for what you would <laughs> usually have especially in the well also in the later parts of uh, of god of war but especially in the first three games which are so serious yeah. uh, i really love that it seems to be a through line of the easter eggs that we point out that they are often an opportunity to be subversive or to go against the grain of what the game tries to to convey. Well, I love I love what you brought up earlier. The it's not just horror games that take themselves very seriously. A lot of games do, and a lot I think of games that do. when you have that moment of self parody, it it makes it a fuller picture. It does. Well, the last one that I have, I'm not sure whether it's. I can't really pinpoint just one Easter egg, and I'm not sure whether they qualify as such, because I'm talking about Astro's Playroom, mm. which was a launch title for the PS5, and it is, for what it's worth, I would say, a huge celebration of the history of PlayStation. Yeah. So, um, I would even say, well, yeah, it, it celebrates the history of PlayStation by making all kinds of things collectible in, in this game, and they are not very well hidden. There are a whole lot of things that are just you know, you you burst a little bubble while you're doing your your uh, jumping and running and your platforming, and then you get a render of an old PlayStation camera. That's kind of how Astro's Playroom works. But I found it so cool because it's really a firework of Easter eggs. Mm. They take you through this history of PlayStation with every single aspect of the design. And even if it's just a small like a small plaquette on the wall which has a PlayStation logo, and when you hit it enough times, it falls off, and you see the old PlayStation logo, the original PlayStation logo, and you just think, oh, that's so nice, I remember this. This is basically the constant feeling that you have. Ah, I remember this. <laughs> yeah. The, well, I think there's, there's a lot of power in that, though, because those kinds of... And I, I would call them Easter eggs, because they feel like it's part of the game, but if you come into it with the nostalgia of the older PlayStation consoles, it means a little more to you. So it's a way to get used to the hardware of the PS5. It's a fun little game. Astro's very cute. But it's also a celebration. And the more you bring to it, the more you get out of it. That is a really good way to start off a new console generation. Yeah. Because you have these people that, you have these people that are new to this people that are just saying hey cool this ps5 thing is supposed to be really good uh, apparently i cannot buy any anywhere still but <laughs> <laughs> if you're if you're so lucky as to get one then you jump into astro's playroom and you think like oh cool you've introduced to all these new mechanics to how this new dual sense controller works fine but if you have been along for the entire ride since the first playstation 
then you get so much out of it. You're feeling remembered of all of these things. And it made me weirdly nostalgic and emotional. Yeah. Because I just realized like, wow, this is really how long I've I've been with, well, I'm going to say how long I've been with PlayStation, even though I <laughs> don't want to be too <laughs> one-sided here. But yes, I've yeah. always played on the PlayStation. My goodness, that's no fault of mine. <laughs> <laughs> yes. And, and it does all kinds of nice things in addition to what you would have as part of the regular collectibles. Like, for example, you also have at the end, you have, a, you can unlock an additional end level, an end boss that is, I think, uh, a render of a, a T-Rex, which has been in the very early demos of the PlayStation, right? Yeah, yeah, that's right. It's so intricate, and there are so many Easter eggs. You're constantly being showered, not only with collectibles, but also with just small Easter eggs that you can find at every corner, references to video game series. Oh, there's Cloud's sword somewhere stuck in the ground. You can't do anything with it, but you just, you have this flash which immediately reminds you of like, oh, okay, this game, wonderful. Oh, this was so beautiful, you know? And this yeah. worked so well for me that I just find it's definitely worth bringing it up on a list of uh, cool Easter eggs. No, I love that one. I think uh, it, it was such a fun experience to play through that because you're so right, those flashes of memory. That's that's a lot of fun. I think the, the last one that I brought is uh, well, maybe fun, I guess, depending on your your take on it. But and your sense of humor. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So... Uh, we've mentioned Toby Fox, Undertale, and Deltarune on this show before, and I think we're both pretty big fans of his. And he did something really incredible in Undertale, which is he made a character that canonically does not exist, and you only run into if you're incredibly lucky. It is absolutely random that you run into any mention of him, and this is the character known as W.D. Gaster. So Gaster, we find, first of all, the only way that you can run into him, there are particular, or you don't even run into him, you run into people who talk about him. The, you, you, in particular rooms, have a very slim chance indicated by a random integer in the game's code called a fun number. And if the fun number is correct, a character will show up in a particular room, and if you talk to them, they're very creepy, they look very out of place, and if you talk to them, they talk about this character, Gaster, who you find out used to be the royal scientist of the world, and he fell into his own machine, and he was scattered across time and space. And so you never actually meet this character. He doesn't talk to you, he's only alluded to. And it is so minor and so minute, yet it has spawned so many theories in, on the internet that it's even, I think, influenced the storytelling of Deltarune in a very meaningful way. So this very infinitesimally small chance that you even hear about this character sparked such intrigue amongst the Undertale fans that it seems like Toby Fox is exploring what that means in Deltarune. Yeah. What a... What a weird and cool thing. It is so weird and so cool that I sometimes wonder mm, whether these things that take, whether some things might just be a fun inclusion, like, mm. for example, in the very first Easter egg we mentioned in Adventure, where it's just like, oh, I'm just going to put this here 
for fun, just for the lols, just so that to credit my game a little bit, up to the point where maybe we don't know what Toby Fox was possibly thinking when putting in this Gaster reference, but possibly it was just a, like at the at a fleeting, a passing moment where he just thought like, okay, ah, this would be funny. I'm just going to throw that in there. And then it takes on a huge life of its own. Yes. And I think from, from what I can gather, maybe to Toby Fox's chagrin. <laughs> yeah. I think he maybe, maybe, I don't know. He's, he's doing interesting things in Delta. I won't say he regrets it, but I think he's, he's definitely aware of it. So I just thought very cool. And, and it has one of those lines that stuck with me, which is when you're talking to one of his followers, the, one of the Gaster followers, he talks to you about Gaster and then he explains that he's shattered throughout time and space. And the final line of that interaction is, you know, we should stop talking about it. Besides, it's rude to talk about people who are listening, right? Oh, God. So good. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man, this is so amazing when there's just so much love poured into every single aspect of the creations by Toby Fox mm. that I feel like conversations about that could be infinite and go in so many directions, probably more directions than Toby Fox had ever anticipated when he made that originally. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> yep. But I think that that maybe is a nice way to round out this conversation because what I gather from all of these Easter eggs that we've brought up, especially starting with Warren Robinette and his Easter egg, is this just affection for the thing they've created to the point where they go out of their way to include a, a fun thing or a creepy thing or something that maybe you you feel like you're you're in you're in on the joke or you're in the club when you find it yeah it shows a certain self-aware engagement with your own creation and i think that's always great because it shows that you're not just doing a kind of uh job to get this game on the shelves and to you know basically get the bills paid which is also a perfectly understandable endeavor but it shows that there is a certain let's say creative vividness behind it that just uh, longs that just urges for a certain form of expression and i think easter eggs are, are a wonderful way to convey that well what kind of easter eggs did you find particularly interesting what kind of easter eggs have you found and are you generally even going on Easter egg hunts? Because hmm. honestly, I think I never really went out of my way to find Easter eggs. It was more of a kind of just organic curiosity, such as flying to that island with a statue of happiness in GTA 4, where I just thought, I wonder whether I can do this, and then just doing it, you know? Yeah, those are the best ones, where you're not you're not scouring the entire game map, but you just happen upon them. Yeah, except, except for the, the Brain of Menses in, in Bloodborne, that one I actually did because I played some sequences of Bloodborne in accordance with a guide in order to get the platinum trophy there was some there are some really mysterious and ominous things you need to do in order to get the platinum trophy in that game yeah 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 but even then i think it's so it's so out of the way that it sticks with you <laughs> the brain of menses who knows whether it's listening <laughs> oh <laughs> with that we're gonna move on and do some side questing 
LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health Right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. As you know, in our side quests, we dive through the internet and unearth the treasures of interesting stories and news. We also bring along impressions of games that we are currently playing. And of course, you can find all the links that we reference in the show notes. Number one, I fear, Dan, that we have to have a conversation <laughs> again <laughs> about Kingdom Hearts. Ah, well, if you insist. I think uh, the best way to start this would probably be, I want to just read the title of this side quest that I put in our notes because I think it yeah. sums up our feelings on it. Uh, all Kingdom Hearts, all the time. Dan will never stop talking about it until he meets the grave. And even then, I can't guarantee he'll stop. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I read that in our sheet and I just couldn't stop chuckling about it. <laughs> but you know Look, what? Yeah. I want to say, because I kind of poked fun at it, it's just because it's an easy target to poke yes. fun at. But actually, <laughs> I do really care about Kingdom Hearts. I haven't played Kingdom Hearts 3 yet. It kind of just, I wanted to play it. I played two levels of it at Gamescom, but I never really picked it up afterwards. Yeah. Um, though I do like Kingdom Hearts very much. Like, I'm not at all someone who's... There's so many people who are hostile towards Kingdom Hearts, and I yes. think like, oh, come on, simmer down a little bit. It's not that... It's, yeah, <laughs> it's not I know. like the ultimate evil of video games. I think that a healthy outlook with Kingdom Hearts is that I, as you said, I have, as everyone knows, I have a deep affection for it but i also realize it's a silly thing and it's one of my favorite silly things but yeah. um i'm very excited to say that kingdom hearts 4 has been announced and there was a trailer that showed a little bit of gameplay as well as what the uh cutscenes and the kind of graphics will look like and right now very little is known about it but i would be remiss uh i think i would have my I don't know, identification card taken away if I didn't talk about this on the show. Um, it shows Sora waking up in a brand new world 
which seems to be heavily inspired by real life Tokyo, but also sort of the more, the broader Square Enix universe. So we had talked before about how a lot of fan speculation is that the new arc uh, that Kingdom Hearts is going on will be more Square Enix centric and less Disney centric. And from this trailer, it definitely looks like there's some truth to that. And the cool thing that I would like to bring up is that uh, for longtime Final Fantasy and specifically Tetsuya Nomura fans, this game feels like Nomura is getting a second chance to make Final Fantasy versus 13, which was a game that had a beautiful trailer that was hyped up like crazy. And then it got kind of subsumed by Final Fantasy 15. So it seems like Nomura is continuing in his path of doing whatever the hell he wants with his series and God bless him for it. (laughs) But they announced Two games at the same time, didn't they? Yes. The other one is a mobile game called Missing Link. And it, it from what I understand, I'm not as familiar with the mobile games like uh, Kingdom Hearts Union Cross and Chi and, and these things. I know the story of them sort of generally. This Missing Link mobile game seems to be a continuation of those games and the most recent one, which was called Dark Road. I think. So yeah, lots of Kingdom Hearts content and we don't have to wait 13 years for it. (laughs) What do you expect when you say like, we don't have to wait 13 years, which was the time that it took to make Kingdom Hearts 3. How much time do you expect for, or is there any kind of date already, a date range for Kingdom Hearts 4? There doesn't seem to be, but here's, and this is pure speculation on my part. So the reason Kingdom Hearts 3 was delayed so long is because of Final Fantasy 15. Final Fantasy 15, we could do a whole episode on this, had a hellish production and yeah. it changed so much and there was so so many roadblocks and road bumps that they went through that it just took over Square Enix for the better part of a decade. So Kingdom Hearts 3 got put on the back burner and it took a long time for them to kind of get that finished up. They don't seem to have that problem anymore. Final Fantasy 16 is supposed to be coming out either late this year or maybe first quarter next year. It's well underway, and I think yeah. it's also primarily made by the team that made Final Fantasy 14 Realm Reborn, right? I believe so. Yeah, there's a lot of there's certainly a lot of visual connective tissue there. Uh, yeah. and I think that because of the the team being split like that and production being a lot smoother for 16. It seems like, from what I'm understanding, the development for Kingdom Hearts 4 is probably uh, underway, and I would imagine within the next probably three years we'll get that title. That would be my guess. Well, they sh- they shall take their time, because mm. I still have Kingdom Hearts 3 to catch up on, <laughs> and then I still can watch like 15 hours of of uh, edited cutscenes from all these smaller games that came out that basically have some kind of interesting more or less interesting, at least let's say mildly interesting story details yes. that you need to be aware of. <laughs> yeah. So if you, uh, if you have time to do your homework, I guess is what we're saying. Yeah. <laughs> yeah I need to prepare for this video game. Yeah. But I think very exciting because I was fully prepared to, uh, not see another kingdom hearts game until I have kids. So <laughs> it seems like 
we're on a better path than we were uh, waiting for the third game. I'm happy to see that they're doing relatively well. I mean, Kingdom Hearts <clears throat> 3, I know it has received some criticism, but at large, it seems that the reception was largely positive, and mm -hmm. I would assume that that also uh, helps the development of the next game because it just put just justifies to put in a sufficient amount of resources and to prioritize it accordingly because these games are so. not unsuccessful at all. No, and to your point, I think this might also be spurring on the production for the fourth game. This was something I found out recently. Kingdom Hearts 3 is far and away the most commercial successful, uh, successful, most commercially successful game that they've yeah. put out. And I think that, that there's no greater uh, fast path to getting a new game developed than making a lot of money on the last title. Exactly, yep. exactly. Number two. Microsoft is building an advertisement program for Xbox ah. by Sean Charnecki and Patrick Coffey, businessinsider.com. Yes, advertisements. Wonderful. I'm looking forward to it. <laughs> the thing is that ads are everywhere. And of course, it's only a matter of time before they break into the domain of video games properly. Like they have already broken into the domains of video games when it comes to mobile gaming. But I would say console gaming is mostly ad-free still. Mm -hmm. Like, it's not that easy to get into console gaming advertisements. But the demographic that plays games on consoles is super attractive because those are people that don't usually watch regular linear TV. Right. So they're not reached through that medium. They are also not people that listen to the radio all that much. They often go online with an active ad blocker because these are people that have some kind of technical understanding and they don't... Un so it's really hard to reach this kind of demographic with advertisement. And Sean Charnecki and Patrick Coffey from Business Insider have now spoken to two anonymous sources at Microsoft that claim to be working on an ad system specifically for the domain of Xbox consoles. This is focused primarily on in-game advertisement in free-to-play games. The mm. article says, quote, those sources said that those ads would show up as, for instance, digitally rendered billboards in a car racing game. Insider was unable to learn if Xbox will also offer other types of in-game ad units, like avatar skins or video ads that play in gaming lobbies. Insider was also unable to determine if Microsoft has pitched the Xbox offering to advertisers yet, end quote. But what we can get from this is that we can assume that somewhere down the line, we might see... Uh, an increase of in-game advertisements on free-to-play games on console. I think the idea of a billboard in a racing car game is very typical. Also, the idea of, you know, when you play like FIFA or something and you have yeah. got like advertisements coming in because that is pretty neutrally integrated into the overall vibe of the game. Like it doesn't take a dent or it doesn't make a dent into its authenticity. It, it kind of reminds me of uh, product placement in movies where, yeah. you know, uh, well, I believe that Marty McFly would drink Pepsi. That doesn't take me out of this universe. You know, it's, yeah. it's not obtrusive. 
the system that they have would be strongly inspired by mobile games. And Microsoft is, according to these two anonymous insiders, relatively cautious about implementing this because they do understand that ads can be disruptive. So they are making a deliberate effort not to overflow games with ads. This system would, at first, only be available to selected brands where they don't allow anyone just to purchase an advertisement slot and put anything in there, but only to selected brands where you can, yeah, maybe a Pepsi can put in an advertisement for Forza. Right, <laughs> I right. don't know, Forza is not a free-to-play game, but yeah, yeah something, something like along that. those lines. Yeah. yeah, and so far it seems that Microsoft is also not intent on keeping any revenue generated by these ads. Instead, the idea is that the developers and the ad network that places these ads, that they shall share the profit. So that raises the question, what's in it for Microsoft then? Why do it if you don't get any money? Well, the simple answer is that Microsoft would then have a platform that would be a lot more attractive for free-to-play developers. So they would basically sustain this entire advertising platform and advertising network while not directly making money, but having a whole lot more games to present on its services. Also, Microsoft is not intending to share any of its data with, with the ad networks and the advertisers for the sake of creating target demographics and profile target demographics, because that's always a, a main concern, right? You have this issue that when you play video games, a whole lot of data is generated, Microsoft slurps up all of this data mm -hmm. and puts it together where they can easily like assemble target demographics, but they do not intend on sharing that with advertisers. Which I suppose, you know, take that at, if we take that at face value, that's a great decision. I think that puts that a lot of people's- important decision. Yes, yeah. and that puts a lot of people's minds at ease, I would imagine too. Um, that being said, it's all nebulous. <laughs> So we'll see if they stick to it, right? We'll see if they stick to it or if they maybe find some way to circumvent it because yeah. I think there are also some regulations in place that they have mm. to consider, like some data protection laws. But there are always ways to wiggle your way around that. I don't know how it would work, but maybe, you know, you can still create these kind of uh, profiles. And we must not underestimate the significance of that because big data is very powerful, right? Yes. Big yes. data is the reason for why you can look up an item on Google and then suddenly see an advertisement for something very similar on your phone immediately afterwards, right? Because you're so specifically targeted. Yes. So I could see that being... I, I'm I'm of two minds about this, as as I often am with the things that we talk about. But I think that I it is a very attractive thing for people to go to Microsoft as as their platform for developers. I mean, because yeah. if you know, especially with free to play games, if Microsoft isn't taking a cut and they're just using it kind of as I, I don't mean this negatively, but if they're using it as bait to get people to come over and and develop for them. I, I can see a lot of developers saying, that is a sweet deal. We're going to go and, and do that, especially if they can make them make these ads feel unobtrusive in a way that they're not just pop-ups, you know, bothering you like on a lot of mobile games, but integrated into the world, like the racing game example or the FIFA example. Um, so I, I can see that being a nice thing, but I also know how uh, gamers work. And I know that uh, the idea of putting ads in my games 
uh, gets a lot of people's dander up. So they're, they're, they should tread lightly, I think, Microsoft. <laughs> they should tread very lightly. And it seems that they are. Mm. At least the people, at least these insiders, that these anonymous insiders that Business Insider has spoken to, they seem to be aware of these matters and claim that Microsoft is cautious. I personally think it's okay to put advertisements in a free-to-play game. That's yeah. why it is free-to-play. Sure. <laughs> you know, you don't That's get anything just... Yeah, nobody's just going to go ahead and says, uh, well, except for Toby Fox. <laughs> most <laughs> most people are not going ahead and saying, I'm going to put resources into making this game and I'm just going to give it out to people for free. It would be cool if they did that, but it would also be cool if we wouldn't live in a capitalist society. <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> However, the thing is, I just don't like free-to-play games at all. I don't want to be the... I don't want to be targeted with ads in that way. Uh, I would much rather, like, for example, what I really like is that on, in mobile games, this is already a big issue. And to me, that makes Apple Arcade attractive. This uh, oh, There's yeah. also a similar subscription model for Google, uh, but I only know the Apple side. That's why I'm going to talk about that, where you just say, okay, I'm going to pay, let's say, $5 a month, and then I'm getting all of these games, like a selection of, let's say, 100 mobile games as part of that subscription and they don't have any advertisements or anything where I need to unlock or microtransactions, nothing of the sort. That's something I much prefer over this advertisement thing. Yeah. So yeah, I'm just not fond of this entire free-to-play model altogether. It reminds me of YouTube Premium. It used to be called YouTube Red and the idea was that Oh yeah. You know, every, everybody who puts content up on YouTube, they make their money through Google AdSense, how many views they're getting. And so when YouTube offered this subscription service where you don't get the ads, obviously the creator said, well, what about us? And it turns out you get a percentage of the, I, I believe this is how it worked. You get a percentage of the subscription for every YouTube red or premium subscription that is watching your video. So that feels similar to me in this way, where either you uh, uh, with Microsoft doing what they're doing, either you claim the ads for yourself on the work that you did, which is nice, or I, it sounds like what, what the Apple Arcade does is, okay, we're all part of the subscription service. You sign a contract with us and you get this, we, we pay you this, you know, based on yeah. what's happening. Yeah. We yep. pay you that. And in exchange, people can play your games without having to watch silly advertisements yeah. that they have to wait five seconds to click away. Yep. <laughs> it's a nice it's a nice alternative to as you said the more traditional just turning on the TV and waiting for the ads to be over. <laughs> yeah. I I personally much prefer that but I do also understand of course when you offer free to play games you want to monetize as much as possible in order to well get something back because there are people that need to be paid for making these games and I think it's also important to keep that in mind. Yeah. That being said, the entire story here, that is still somewhat conjecture. There's no mm. way we could verify this by a second source because it's insider reports. And we only know that this ad program is supposedly scheduled to launch in the third quarter of this year, but there is no official confirmation from Microsoft. They say, quote, Microsoft did not confirm these plans. A spokesperson said... We are always looking for ways to improve the experience for players and developers, but we don't have anything further to share, end quote. So that's the best way to say, well, 
we're not going to tell you anything. <laughs> yeah, we've we've done our uh, our corporate speak translation before, and this is yeah. uh, this is saying we're not saying yes, but we're not saying no. Stop asking us. <laughs> yeah, please do not ask this question. <laughs> it's yeah. like, do you know these? Do you know when you try to call like a, a service hotline, and then you have to <laughs> yeah, go through saying. like an elaborate structure of pressing random buttons in order to get through a, a person who actually to an agent to a call agent. And then once you have, once you think you finally reach the point, it's going to be like, our information is on the website so-and-so. Thank you for your call. Dude, dude. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, what? For it that, is... I've spent all this time. <laughs> <laughs> it says the Buddhists would say, a question wrongly asked. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Number three, just very briefly, because I had this on the sheet for so long. Yes, it's and been eating at you. <laughs> ah, it's eating away at me every single day. And that is, how is it possible that the PS5 cannot natively connect to Bluetooth headphones? That's it is a simple question. I don't understand. It's baffling. <laughs> it's 2022. Bluetooth has existed for 20 plus years. Yeah. Come on. It's It's... Just befuddling because you buy this new, this brand new console that is so hyped that yeah. literally no one can buy it in the store. And then you find that if you want to connect your headphones, and this is a warning to everyone who's still looking for a PS5, be aware that if you want to connect your headphones, you need to have a Bluetooth dongle mm -hmm. that you then plug into one of the USB slots. And through that, you have to connect your headphones. This is, to me, irritating for several reasons. One of the reasons is that whenever I want to connect, in this case, my AirPods Max, which are relatively flexible with connecting with devices, I have to always, I have to turn on my PS5, then I have to walk to the console and press the button on the dongle to trigger the connection. Yeah. It's just a little bit cumbersome when you think, um, well, isn't it possible to just make it automatic? And the thing is, the PS5, it does have Bluetooth. Oh, uh, yeah. Because you know, how else is the controller communicating with the console, right? There is, right. I think I think there is a Bluetooth signal uh, receiver and a, a Bluetooth transmitter in the PS5, as far as I'm aware. But it's just not, uh, it doesn't, it can't access this kind of connectivity standard that is common for uh, Bluetooth headphones. Well, I'll say that I usually, when I'm playing a game, I don't usually use my headphones so this isn't a problem that I had encountered as much as you had, but I will tell you that when you and I played Elden Ring uh, a couple of weeks ago, it was so funny to see my setup so that we could talk to one another because it was, yeah. I, I had a little table in front of the PlayStation 5 and I had my microphone and then I had my headphones hooked up to a device to hook them up to the microphone so that I could hook it up to the controller. So yeah. it, it, it was like a, you know, a late nineties, how do I get on the internet setup? <laughs> <laughs> it is just so ridiculous, especially in light of the fact that that's the time when I first put this into our sheet. Now that Nintendo, for example, has updated the Nintendo switch. So now you can natively connect Bluetooth headphones to it. You have the same issue with the switch and, and yeah. even the Nintendo switch which is a much older piece of hardware, can apparently. It took Nintendo quite some convincing. I'm sure there were also some technical challenges that they sure. needed to solve, but it can connect to headphones. The PS5, sadly, still cannot. And 
I just find it I just find it baffling and I have if I had one one free wish, one thing that I could just directly slip into Sony's inbox and be like, please fix that with the next update, then it's please try and make it, if at all, make it possible so that people can connect Bluetooth devices and headphones natively with the via the PS5. When Uncle Nintendo is further along than you are, it's time to <laughs> reassess. <laughs> Do you know how it is with, with the Xbox? Is that I think it's the same thing, right? I'm not as familiar with it, but I would I would imagine that there must be there must be an easier workaround than what we've been dealing with on the, on the PlayStation 5. With a dongle. Yeah. <laughs> well, thank you so very much for listening to me rambling <laughs> about my, <laughs> my my privileged rambling about oh yes. how unhappy I am that I have to press an extra button on this <laughs> PS5 that nobody else in the world literally owns. <laughs> if you want to support us, then you can get Studying Pixels Plus, of course, by going to studyingpixels.com slash plus. And if you want to reach out, then you can head over to studyingpixels.com slash contact. We're looking forward to hear from you and we'll talk again next week. See you then, everyone. Bye-bye. See you then. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.